my fashion style growing up had one guiding principle. I had to make sure at least one article clothing I was wearing had something to do with sports. <laughs> my favorite sports gear to wear was the jerseys of my favorite uh, professional athletes, especially professional basketball players. Players like LeBron James and Michael Jordan, Tracy McGrady, Allen Iverson, and my favorite player, Kobe Bryant. I have multiple Kobe jerseys. Uh, he's number eight, number 24. I have uh, his rookie card. I have a poster. I even, one time when we were on vacation uh, to Disney in Orlando, we saw a big Kobe Steakhouse sign, and I happened to be wearing a Kobe jersey, so we had to get out and take a picture. <laughs> if you haven't heard, Kobe Bryant, along with his daughter Gianna and seven other people, died in a helicopter crash a week ago today. Kobe was 41 years old. He played 20 years in the NBA. Like many other young boys and girls, I love to watch Kobe play basketball. Uh, I practice his fadeaway jumper in my driveway. I practice his reverse layups in my driveway. And I was mesmerized by the dominance of the Los Angeles Lakers growing up. It's no secret that in America we have what's all in all an unhealthy celebrity culture. You know, people obsess over the lives of others. Tabloids somehow are still in business and sell too many copies. And we often choose far too poorly the people we admire and laud. People's love for Kobe Bryant and our celebrity culture at large shows that we are just natural-born admirers. We're drawn to the best. We're drawn to the unique. We're drawn to the special. And for all that's wrong with our celebrity culture, I think it's good that we admire excellence. And that was Kobe Bryant's basketball game. Now, Kobe Bryant's life wasn't without complications or messiness, but the outpouring of grief this past week shows how much people admired him. You know, preparing for this sermon in the midst of all the different reactions from players and analysts, I, just, I thought about our practices and our lives as Christians. You know, every week, and I would hope every day for Christians, we talk about Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We don't have highlight reels of Jesus. We don't have footage of interviews. But as the Apostle Peter wrote of some of the first Christians, even though we haven't seen him, we love him. That's because we have never encountered anyone like Jesus. There is no one more admirable, more compelling, more excellent than Jesus. And not only do we admire Jesus as Christians, but actually the deeper we go into knowing Jesus, the more admirable he gets. Not only do we admire Jesus, but as Christians, we say that Jesus has changed us fundamentally who we are as people. Christians are those who, alongside with the Apostle Paul, say that the lives we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. Christians are those, alongside the ones in the ancient city of Colossae, who say, Christ, Christ is our life. So as we head into a familiar passage this morning, often called the triumphal entry, the passage that's read during Palm Sunday, I want us to keep this main point or main takeaway in mind. You'll see it printed in your bulletin. 
says, press on to know Jesus, admire him, and be changed by him. And friends, look closely, because he's not the king we want or expect, but he's the king we need. Press in to know Jesus, admire him, be changed by him, but look closely, because he's not the king we want or expect, but the king we need. Let's read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. If you're looking at the Bible's provided in the pew rack in front of you, they're red. This is one I'm reading from. You'll find it on page 847. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the chapter numbers are the large numbers printed in big, bold letters. The verse numbers are the small numbers right after that. So we're going to look at the gospel according to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Well, think of our time together this morning, friends, as, as painting a portrait of Jesus. We're going to work on it one section at a time, piece by piece, as we go through this passage together. And when we're done, we'll stand back, we'll look at the whole portrait and consider the entire picture. So first aspect, first section of this portrait is Jesus, our leader. Now, there are a lot of different ways that we can receive news today. Some more clear than others. Sometimes we get news out in secret. Those uh, in the know try to get news out in secret. They'll leak information to the press. Other times, reporters will be able to get news out from an individual, but the individual won't disclose his or her identity. So reporters will have to use some vague statements like, sources say, or a White House official said this. But other times still, we get news directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak, in the forms of official statements and press conferences. So throughout the Gospel of Mark so far, Jesus has often veiled his identity. He directed much of his teaching not to the hordes of people who followed him, but much of his teaching was directed toward these 12 kind of goofball disciples who followed him. Most of his miracles that Jesus did weren't done in the bustling cities of Israel. They were done in kind of rural, no-name towns. Jesus even regularly withdrew from public notice, even going into the wilderness at times. He wasn't into, if we use the language of today, he wasn't into building a brand. If we stick to the language of news reports, 
we say that Jesus has really only dealt with local news and the occasional official statement. But now, as he enters into Jerusalem, there's something different. Jesus is now preparing to make a very public entrance into the city of Jerusalem. He'll ride into this holy city surrounded by a group of people shouting Hosanna. And they were likely entering Jerusalem during the time of year where the city would be filled to capacity. The time right before the Passover feast. And it's likely that all the city of Jerusalem heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming to this city. This was no local news story. This was a national story, even an international story. So friends, consider this. Jesus, our leader, purposefully wanted to make the last act of his life publicly known. Remember Jesus' words from the previous chapter, in chapter 10. He knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He knew that in Jerusalem that he would die. He knew, and then he knew he made the uh, entrance. He arranged this entrance because he wanted everyone to know what he was going to do in the last stage of his life. A public announcement about his final act in the city of Jerusalem. And all the groups in Jerusalem, as we continue to read, knew what happened with Jesus. The chief priests knew, the scribes, the rulers the elders, the Romans, the Greeks, the common people. Everyone knew about this final act of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so out of all the events in his life that Jesus has previously kept veiled or hidden, this is what Jesus wants people's attention drawn toward. Now he knew the darkness that awaited him in this city, but he pressed forward, as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him. He wants everyone to know what he will do in, Jeru in Jerusalem because he knows that his death on behalf of sinners is the most wonderful and important event in the history of mankind. He knows that the joy of Easter morning is coming, that the result of his work will be the full forgiveness of his people, to set them free from their sin. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn from Jesus' public ent entrance into the city of Jerusalem, preparing for this last act of his death? Well, for one, like our leader, we may be heading straight in to suffering and pain, but because Jesus went before us and died in our place, rose again, we know that whatever suffering and pain we are headed directly in, that like Jesus, there is always a plan and there is always joy on the other side. Well, from his public entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus, our leader, also teaches us what to emphasize about what he did. The old pastor, J.C. Ryle, captures this so well. He says this, let us see here one more proof of the unspeakable importance of the death of Christ. Let us treasure up his great, gracious sayings. Let us walk in the steps of his holy life. Let us prize his intercession. Let us long for his second coming. But never let us forget 
that the crowning fact in all that we know of Jesus Christ is his death upon the cross. From that death flows all of our hopes. Without that death, we would have nothing solid beneath our feet. May we prize that death more and more every year we live. And in all our thoughts about Christ, rejoice in nothing so much as the great fact that he died for us. This is what Jesus wants to emphasize. So in going public about his entrance into the capital city of Jerusalem, Jesus instructed two of his disciples to find a colt for him to ride into this city. And we'll get to the significance of Jesus' choice for an animal in a little bit. But we shouldn't pass up just that small detail. Jesus had to borrow this colt. Jesus had to borrow this colt. This reflects what happened in all of Jesus' life. Jesus sailed on the Sea of Galilee in a borrowed boat. He would hold the Passover feast with his disciples in a borrowed house. Friends, when he died, he had to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And here now, he rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. This reminds us, the Lord Jesus Christ, our leader, he was poor. He grew up in a poor family. He didn't have the trappings of this world. He says of himself that he often had no place to lay his head, homeless. The Bible says that though he was rich and eternity passed, for our sake, he became poor. Now, there's a lot we could say reflecting on this. I think for one, we should say that if you work hard and still struggle financially, that is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, you have more in common with Jesus than a lot of people. We should say in light of Jesus borrowing a donkey, being poor, We should also say that if Jesus, our leader, was poor, then we shouldn't be ashamed for asking for help either. If Jesus asked for help, we shouldn't be ashamed of asking for help. Well, finally, we should also say if Jesus, our leader, was willing to be poor, friends, so should we. We should be willing to be poor. We should be more ready and willing to give away what we don't need to give away, to use more of what we've been given to help and to serve the Lord. Jesus, our leader, makes a public entrance into the city of Jerusalem. He He wants everyone to know what he has come to do. Jesus, our leader, goes into Jerusalem on a borrowed colt. Even the most basic of farm animals, he has to borrow. Well, let's move on to the second part of our portrait. Jesus, our hope. Jesus, our hope. I promise you that it gets to the significance of Jesus' choice of an animal, so here we are. Why did Jesus choose this animal? Was it just because he would, he would have needed to make a reservation for a cooler animal, probably a month in advance, and this is the best he could get at the last minute? No, maybe. It's because riding on a colt, as we read earlier, was fulfillment of words from the Old Testament. Now, Mark doesn't quote it like Matthew does, but the allusion to the book of Zechariah is unmistakable here in Mark 11. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, tells us that the Messiah, the anointed one who would usher in God's kingdom on earth, 
would come riding on a donkey's colt. Now we're going to consider that verse in a little more detail later on this evening. But for now, we should say that Jesus' choice of this animal is not accidental. It's very purposeful. It's very deliberate. This public announcement that he's making by riding on this animal is he's saying, I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the fulfillment of the scriptures. Even Jesus coming down the mountain that he did, the Mount of Olives, even that is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Mount of Olives rises about 300 feet over the city of Jerusalem on the east side of the city. At the fall of Jerusalem, about 600 years prior to this event, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of God's glory leaving the temple in Jerusalem and stopping on the Mount of Olives. And it's as if Jesus riding on the Mount of Olives is God's glory returning to the city. Even the book of Zechariah talks about the Mount of Olives, associated with the coming judgment of the king. And so for a long time, this Mount of Olives, where Jesus is riding down, has become to be associated with the Messiah, the long-awaited one. So friends, this tells us Jesus riding on a donkey, Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives. It tells us what he understood about himself. Jesus understood himself to be more than a good teacher. Jesus understood himself to be the hope of the world. So Jesus' purposeful actions to fulfill what the Bible promised. It tells us that we need to have several important truths in mind as we approach the scriptures. One, as we approach the scriptures, we need to have in mind that the scriptures, that the Bible is a unified whole. The Bible is a unified whole. It's not chopped up individual sections and stories. It's one grand sweeping narrative that builds up toward and centers in one central character is the one here, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's been longed for and expected for thousands of years. Jesus, the promised one, through whom God would reestablish his rule on the earth, save sinners, and put an end to evil. Jesus fulfilling the scriptures here reminds us of that truth as we approach the Bible. Well, Jesus being the fulfillment of the scriptures, we should also approach the Bible with the understanding of Jesus' own devotion to the word. When we read of Jesus' life in books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we find one who is just relentlessly devoted to scripture. For instance, we'll read in uh, probably a couple weeks, before Jesus was arrested, Peter told Jesus to resist. You know what Peter, or what Jesus responded to Peter? He asked him, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled? He was this concerned about it. Even on Jesus' way to the cross, he's quoting scripture. Even on the cross itself, he is quoting the Bible. What does this tell us about Jesus? Well, one author puts it like this. It tells us that Jesus' life was shaped by a total confidence in and knowledge of the scripture. He brought every part of his life under it and faced everything in his life through it. Even in his moments of greatest agony, he quotes the Bible, revealing his trust in it was at the very core of his heart and mission. Like Jesus, we are devoted to the scriptures. 
And like Jesus, we read the scriptures believing that he is the centerpiece and the hope of the scriptures. Now, that's a little bit more of the technical side of Jesus' actions, why he chose the animal he chose, why he came down on the Mount of Olives. Now, the technical side is important, that Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, even the seemingly obscure promises, like riding on a donkey. It shows us that God keeps his promises, that his word can be trusted. We need to plant those truths deep in us. You know, we will feel, we'll really feel Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday when we feel our need and our desperation more and more. One of the verses that haunted me, that haunted me in a good way, uh, as I read through the Bible last year, was Genesis 41, verse 1. Genesis 41, verse 1. It's in the middle of the Joseph story, and it might be the low point of the Joseph story, in my opinion. You may know what happened to Joseph. Uh, out of his 11 brothers, he was his dad's favorites, and Joseph didn't exactly shy away from that. His brothers being jealous threw him in a cistern. I guess that's what people did when they were upset back then. Uh, and then sold him into slavery, which I guess is what people did when they were upset back then. And when he got into slavery, he was falsely accused by his master and then thrown into prison. And when in prison, he helped someone get out, who in turn forgot to return the favor to Joseph when he had a chance. That is the low point of the story, and that's when Genesis 41, verse 1, appears. And it just starts with a very, very short phrase. The verse starts saying, after two whole years, after two whole years, two entire years of nothing, no news, no change, no details, just four words, two years, two years of Joseph searching for any kind of hope from God that he could find. So just like diamonds shine brighter against the black velvet backdrop, just like food tastes sweeter to the one who is starving, so is hope appreciated and longed for, for more by those who feel hopeless. When we head back to the book of Zechariah, to the original promise of this king coming riding on a donkey, we find who the promise is addressed to, who is Zechariah writing to? Well, back in Zechariah 9, verse 12, he writes to prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. Those who cannot find or sense any way out of their situation. Kind of like Joseph. So friends, what, what do we say? What do we say to endless wars? What do we say to sudden deaths what do we say to epidemic viruses what do we say to broken families what do we say to addicts what do we say to those who are bored unfulfilled we say that there is one who came riding on a donkey to set us free 
who came to give his life as a sacrificial payment for the sins of anyone who repents from living for themselves and turn toward trusting in him alone. So as we finish this portrait of Jesus, I'm reminded of another verse that's carried with me recently from Ephesians 2. Describes our former state of having no hope, no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus, our hope. Now, it's clear that the people who are around Jesus when he descended the Mount of Olives on the colt of a donkey, it's clear that they recognized that there was something special about him. Verse 8 of our passage says that the people spread their cloaks, their outer garments on the road, sort of a makeshift red carpet. They spread leaves from branches on the road, thus Palm Sunday. And was this simply just a spontaneous, random decision on behalf of the crowd? There's some influencer in the crowd, he said, hey, hey, you know what would be a really cool idea? Take off your coat and put it on the ground. And maybe Jesus will ride on it. What sounds really random to us was actually very, again, purposeful. There have been, uh, in the history of the kingdom of Israel, there have been kings who have been welcomed in this way that Jesus was welcomed here. And so we come to the third section of our portrait of Jesus Jesus, our King. Jesus, our King. Now, more than the cloaks and leaves on the ground, there's another small detail. It's a small detail about the animal Jesus rode on that shows us his kingship. Look back at Jesus' instructions to the disciples in verse 2. He says, what was so special about this colt? He says, no one has ever sat on it. Now, what does that show us? Well, it was the custom in that day that animals who were used for sacred purposes weren't allowed to be used for daily common purposes. So, for example, in the book of 1 Samuel, when the Israelites were transporting the Ark of the Covenant, God instructed that the animals who were pulling the Ark could have never been yoked before. So when Jesus finds a colt that no one has ever ridden, He is claiming that this cult is set aside for a sacred purpose. That he is to be treated as holy, like the Ark of the Covenant. He wants people to make no mistake, this is the king who is entering Jerusalem. Now that's by far the shortest uh, portion, the smallest portion of our portrait of Jesus, because we can't talk long about Jesus being our king before we realize that he's not the king that we expect. So when we come to the last part of our portrait of Jesus from this passage, we find that Jesus is better than we think. Jesus is better than we think. Going back to the people around Jesus during this event, when we look at what they said, what they did, the crowd on Palm Sunday, they're kind of like your aunt's fruitcake. Very well-meaning, makes a good fruitcake. You take a bite, and it tastes all right at first. It tastes pretty good. You keep chewing, and you get a crunch of something that does not belong. That is definitely off. That is something like the crowd on Palm Sunday. 
When we look at what the crowd said and did, we find that at best, they were confused about who Jesus was and the kind of king he was. Now, many of us know very well the words they used. Verses 9 and 10. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, you might know, literally means save now. So think about what we know so far about this crowd of people. We have this makeshift red carpet, cloaks on the ground, palms. We have these words here, save now. And we're saying that the crowd is confused about who Jesus is. Sounds pretty clear to me. Well, it's helpful to know the background to what the people were saying as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. They were quoting from Psalm 118. This is a psalm about a pilgrimage or journey to Jerusalem. And it would be a psalm that was repeated and sang every year as people from throughout Israel made their way to Jerusalem for Passover. And the cry of Hosanna was repeated by pilgrims coming into Jerusalem year after year. It was an expression of joy and jubilation. But just like something that's repeated over and over again, its meaning might be taken away a little bit. So it became a cry kind of like our phrase, praise the Lord. A good phrase, but one that's just used a lot. So when reading of words that the people said, it's not quite clear whether or not they were lauding Jesus as this long-expected Messiah. You see, the crowd talks about the coming kingdom of our father, David. That's not how Jesus talked about the kingdom. Jesus talked about the coming kingdom of God. It's clear that Jesus was presenting himself as king of Israel, and those who were around him were excited about it. And Jesus didn't put a wet blanket on their excitement either. But we read in other tellings of this same event in Palm Sunday that even Jesus' disciples, in classic fashion, didn't understand what Jesus was doing in this event. And we get a sense that the crowd wasn't so different uh, than the disciples in their understanding, not just because of what they said, but also because of what the crowd did after Jesus came into Jerusalem. Look again at verse 11. As Jesus entered the temple, and what did Jesus find when he got there? Big welcoming committee. Maybe they had back then, you know, the name tags, just like us, which is written in Hebrew. Big party, welcoming Jesus. Got the sheet cake and everything. Not quite. When Jesus actually enters this city, goes into the temple, it's actually pretty anticlimactic. Doesn't find anyone there. The crowd that was with him as he entered the city vanished when he entered into the temple. I think it's worth reflecting with a couple quick points of application, given the crowd's actions here. The first point of application, enthusiasm does not always mean faith. Enthusiasm does not always mean genuine faith faith. There are plenty of people who want a spiritual buzz, but don't actually follow Jesus as a Lord. So practically what this looks like, if we orient our worship gatherings to cater to the felt needs of non-Christians, 
then we will fall into the trap of seeking to stir up enthusiasm rather than first calling toward repentance and faith. So if all we are after is an emotional connection and all we are after is enthusiasm, then we'll care more about whether or not people like us and are entertained than we care whether or not people actually follow Christ. Now, friends, don't, get, don't hear me saying that enthusiasm is bad. Oh, enthusiasm is a good thing. But when enthusiasm is divorced from and not grounded in the truth, then it becomes deceiving. Then it becomes deceiving, just like here. It's a reminder of what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, that we must, must worship God in spirit and in truth. So if we start, if our starting point is trying to garner enthusiasm, we'll likely end up compromising on the truth. We'll likely end up going soft on the truth. So do we want those who don't follow Jesus to feel welcome here? Absolutely. We want to make sure it's accessible. We want to make sure we explain our terms, explain the jargon. But we don't want people who don't follow Jesus to necessarily feel comfortable in that state. So practically, this looks like explaining our terms, explaining what's going on in the Bible to people who are less familiar with it. But it also looks like calling people to Christ each week. And also one of the reasons why the pastoral prayer is so long, just a sub-reason, is that those who don't follow Christ actually might get a sense of that. Oh, this is uncomfortable. He's still praying. We're still <laughs> praying. You can, you can stomach a 30-second prayer. But it's a little harder for those who actually don't follow Christ to, to pray for that period of time. So that's a long rabbit trail. But just in light of the crowd's enthusiasm, and then they vanish. You can also say a point of application is that our words and actions about Jesus should not remain fuzzy and unclear. We need to call people to hop off the fence and make their faith in Christ clear. So more than someone we acknowledge and respect, Jesus is someone we worship. More than someone who is just another option on the religious buffet, Jesus is King and Lord. More than just a hobby that fits into an hour of our time two Sundays a month, we follow Jesus in all of our lives. So we call people to this real faith and not just enthusiasm. We call people to hop off the fence. We do this not just to challenge half-hearted commitments, though that's good. We do this not just to expose the phonies, though that's useful at times too. We call people to this all-in faith in Jesus because he is like unlike any other figure. So when we stand back and look at the portrait of Jesus, even from this passage, we see one who combines divine strength and human weakness. We see one who enters as a king, who tames an untamed animal, who draws scores of people. And at the same time, we see one who enters humbly, who is poor, who rides on a donkey. We see one who enters a desperate situation as a king, but he comes not on a, not on a war horse, 
he comes on a donkey. He comes not with an army. He comes with 12 lowly disciples. He comes not to kill. He comes to die. Because Jesus enters as the king, not the king we want, but the king we need. The one who deals with the most desperate and greatest need of humanity. Not geopolitical freedom, but freedom from sin. So my fellow natural admirers, here we are again. At the end of another Sunday, another close to a sermon. And we've spent our time looking at Jesus as we see him in the scriptures. Maybe it's for the first time. You're beginning to see who he is. And so, friends, today, if you are not following Jesus, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in him alone as your Lord and Savior, friend, we invite you to do that today. Talk to someone afterwards at the doors. Talk to find me afterwards. Be happy to talk with you about that. But brothers and sisters in Christ, every day is a chance, not just to study who Jesus is. Oh, we do that. You want to do that. Not just to praise Jesus, though we do that. Every day is a chance to taste and see that the Lord is good. That he is our leader, our hope, our king. It doesn't just leave that in our head. We come, we taste, we trust, we find life in him. Let's pray together. Our Jesus, we love you. We want to say that you are our all. We want to say that we have left all and, and forsaken all and followed you. Oh God, but, but sin, sin lurks and remains in our heart and draws us away from you. So Lord, take our lives and let them be consecrated toward you. Fill us up, Lord, with awe and love, admiration, worship, and praise for you alone. We want you to be our lives. We want you to be our all. Help us to follow after you in humility and strength. Help us to lean on you, our leader, our king, our hope. Help us to point others toward you as the one way to the Father. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.